Casey picked the worship songs this morning, and um, so encouraged that she did. I want to continue on in that theme. You know, a lot of times when um, a lot of times when I preach, or I look back over messages I preached in the last while, I feel like I feel like I'm in my groove when we're preaching about like mission, right? About like what God has called us to do, like challenging us, like holding up scripture in front of us, and like this is this is what God paints like a picture of the church that He wants to be, His bride. This is what this is who how we're meant to love one another from last week. This is how we're meant to be engaged with the world, and it's all very challenging, right? It's all very out there, very like go for it. But this morning I felt, um, or during the week I felt that God would want me to share a message this week that's more um, pastoral was the word that came to mind. And uh, so encouraged that Casey picked those songs that just speak about how we're loved by God. And uh, I feel like God would just want to remind you this morning of how much he loves you. Um, and I've been reading through the Gospel of John. I'll share some thoughts from that. But really, at the core of things, guys, that's who we are. We're people who have been loved by God. As we, uh, as we sang that song, Oh, How He Loves Us, I was reminded of uh, this time when we were in Lesotho. Um, some kids came up to me and they started singing that song to me. But they started singing it in... Uh, in uh, in Sasutu. So last time we were there before in like November, we ran like a worship night, and uh, and I was like, I want to know one song in Sasutu to be able to sing that people could sing along. So they taught us the the words to Oh How He Loves Us, right? So it's like Oh Harirata, Oh Harirata is Oh How He Loves Us, okay, in Sasutu, and uh, and we sang that, and I actually forgot all about that until like a year later we were there and we arrived, and uh, the kids remember like Daddy passed the rope, Daddy passed the rope, we run it up, and then one of the guys pretends to be me and he starts stamping his foot and slamming a guitar like this and he's like oh harirata and like he remembers it and I'm like man I know right he remembered the song and he remembered me sweating and breaking strings or whatever but I'm like Lord if in that moment he remembers that God loves him like he's singing oh how he loves us and if we could be known as people who, who, who get that do you know what I mean who are like that's your defining characteristic you're them people who think that God loves you you're them people who walk in that. You're those people who know that. And uh, I believe that God would maybe want to just uh, remind us of some of that this morning. Like I said, I'm reading through John. I'm reading through it a chapter a day. Do you know that there's, uh, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament, right? And there's 260 weekdays in a year. Isn't that incredible? So one chapter a day, you could read the New Testament, reading Monday to Friday. And uh, it's a plan we have to do next year to read through the New Testament together and be in small groups or whatever. But I'm experimenting with it myself. And me and Patrice have these little Bible journals. And we've been reading through the Gospel of John together. And, uh, and man, this week I got onto, uh, I got onto the stuff where, where Jesus is to be crucified. And, uh, and it just hit me afresh. Sometimes we talk about Jesus being crucified. And I think one of, the, one of the, the main struggles we face as Christians is everything just becoming ordinary to us, Yeah. That words are just words. Like, they're just like, Jesus was crucified for you. Okay, I've heard that a million times. But as I read this week, it like, uh, it hit me afresh. It hit me in loads of different ways. It was like visceral. It was like real as I was reading it. Um, this sacrifice that Jesus, that Jesus made for me. And um, I just want you to, I want to maybe try and communicate. I hope that the Holy Spirit does some of the same stuff in your heart this morning as he did in my heart this week as I was reading through that stuff. Um, that uh, God would want to identify with where you're at this morning. That the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into the world tells us that God is interested in being where, where we are. Um, and then God is also interested in us being where he is. And because he was where he was, we can now be where he is. Which sounds like a bit of a tongue twister, but hopefully it, uh, it expands a bit this morning. Or you'll understand it a bit as I expand upon it. That because of where he's been 
we get to be where he is. And something struck me in John this week that, that fired off my kind of preacher's brain, that, uh, that Jesus went through three different places um, on his way to the, to the cross, including the cross, on his like, final journey. There's three named places that were given that Jesus went to. And handily enough for a preacher, they all start with the letter G, okay? So we've got these, these three places, Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha. I'd never seen the Gabbatha one before, before I read in John's Gospel, before that, that, that name was put there. I knew Golgotha, I knew Gethsemane, but I want to look at those three places in turn, three different ways that Jesus identifies with us, three different ways that he suffered on our behalf so that we could live with hope, so that we could live with, uh, with him in our lives. And I know Bernard already prayed, but I pray again, Lord, that you would take these moments and use them for your glory. And in the same way that I felt your father's heart, your pastoral heart, Lord, reaching out to me, your shepherd's heart, wanting to guide me and be with me. Um, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that same thing this morning as we spend time in your word in Jesus' name. So he starts off in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we all, we all know about, where Jesus is betrayed and he's arrested. And where beforehand he suffers this in, intense spiritual attack. After that, he moves through like, this process until he ends up in a place called Gabbatha, where it's the place where, where, where he suffers at the hands of, of humans. And ultimately, he ends up in Golgotha, which is the place of the skull where we know that he's crucified on our behalf. And I'd like to look at each of them in turn and hope that the Spirit helps us to Understand that everything he went through in these places can and should and will, God willing, uh, affect us today in profound ways. So I'm going to bounce um, in between scriptures. There's a lot of scriptures. Um, but uh, like I said last week, I don't want to just glaze over scripture stuff. The scripture is more important than the things I have to say about the scripture. It can accomplish more than I can accomplish. So I want to spend a good bit of time in it. So we'll see in John 18, 1. Uh, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples disciples entered. Now, John doesn't mention the name of the garden by name, but garden still starts with G, so we're okay, right? Uh, but uh, the garden, we're told in Mark and in Matthew and in Luke, was the garden of Gethsemane, okay? It's this place called Gethsemane, and you may know this already, you may not, but Gethsemane, you can go and visit it today. There's a chapel built there, and it's built inside this cave. So there's a garden, and inside the garden, there's this cave, and the cave is called Gethsemane because Gethsemane means, uh, it means the olive press. So it would have been a place where people took the olives that that they'd farmed and they were brought there and there was a big mechanical press that you put them in and squashed them down and made olive oil up in this cave. So it's a physical place you can visit now in Jerusalem uh, and it means like the, the olive press. And this is the place where we see Jesus like just most in, in anguish. Like with, with like do words like, if I fire off words like anxiety or despair or fear, like do they trigger anything that you might be going through right now? You see Jesus living in that state. We often think of Jesus floating above it all. You know, the way sometimes he talks to people, they ask him a question, he has this response that seems like I'm so far above it all. And, but but, but right, right, right here you see him in like mental turmoil. He's like spiritually attacked. In the same way that Gethsemane means like the olive press. I think it's symbolic that Jesus is being like, like pressed. He's being, he's being squashed. He's under, he's under spiritual pressure. Early on in Luke's gospel, we see where Jesus was tempted by the devil, yeah? You know, where he's taken out into, into, um, into the desert, and he's tempted three times. And Jesus seems to answer the devil, like, fairly quickly and easily. Like, the devil tempts him in three different ways, and he responds. But the end of that little uh, interaction between Jesus and the devil, it says that then the devil left him. Um, it says, then the devil departed for him until an opportune time. Like, the devil left him alone for a while until an opportune time. And you don't have... 
really the devil coming back on the scene through the rest of what we read in the Gospels. Right? I think that opportune time is, is here, is what we're reading. It's like Jesus is under like this spiritual attack from the enemy in the garden. Like he starts to worry, he starts to be stressed, he starts to be anxious. And he's suffering at the hands of Satan. Gethsemane is the place where Jesus suffered at the hands of Satan, I'm convinced. And so we have this description in all of the Gospels of, um, of, of what Jesus went through in that garden. The anticipation of what's to come. Remember, Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over. He knows the crucifixion that's coming, the pain that's coming. And we see, like, for the first time, not for the first time to humanity, but possibly the most identifiable aspect of Jesus' humanity that we see in the Gospels. Like, we know that Jesus was fully human, but here we see him acting in a way that we can fully identify with as human. Like, he's living in fear and in anguish of what he's going to, to face. Um, in Luke 22, he's in so much trouble that it says that an angel appears to, to strengthen him. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, a strengthening him. So God sends an angel. God, just think about that for a second. Jesus needs an angel to strengthen him. You see Jesus in his humanity here. Um, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then in Matthew it says, And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. Sweats, sweats drops of, of blood. He says he's in agony. He falls to the ground. And Do you see um, what I see here? Do you see the cues here that, that are being included to show us, like um, to connect us with the bigger story of the Bible? Do you see Jesus is in, he's in a garden, right? Like where, where else do we see a garden in the Bible? Like turn to the first page, yeah? And we have like the Garden of Eden. Now we have the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you see, like, are you reminded of, like, where it says that he sweated drops of blood? Are you reminded of, of the curse that was there on Adam and Eve? You know, after they sinned, God curses them and he says, by the sweat of your brow you'll eat your bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Do you see the imagery even in to dust you shall return and Jesus falling on his face in the ground? Jesus in the garden, tempted by the enemy, sweating dropping to the ground, to the dust. It's like a direct imaging of what happened in Genesis when humanity fell. And you've got this reversal happening where Jesus, the first of a new humanity, enters into a garden to be tempted by the enemy again. And instead of like us saying, we want to be like God and we want to, we, want to, we want to rebel against God, we want to choose what's right and wrong for us, you have Jesus reversing it where he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but your will be done. Not as I will, but as you will. Do you see? It's Jesus redeeming the fall here. Symbolically, it's what ha what's happening here is that Jesus is undoing what Adam had done. Jesus, where Adam had failed and eaten of the tree and wanted to be like God, Jesus in the opposite doesn't fail, even facing into what he's facing. Adam was only facing into eternity in the presence of God and joy and dominion over the earth, facing into all good things, and he chose the bad. Jesus is facing into the toughest thing we can imagine, and he chooses instead of saying, my will over the Father's will, he chooses to say, no, the Father's will over my will and he's in anguish and he sweats drops of blood and he falls to the ground why? because he loves you because we needed somebody to defeat the enemy on our behalf we needed somebody who could face up 
to that pressure, who could live the sinless life, who could resist temptation at everything, even facing death, who could face it and say, Father, your will, not mine. See, there was another prophecy when, 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 when the, 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 the fall happened and there was a prophecy over the enemy, over the snake. You know what? God curses the snake. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And it says, you'll strike his heel and they, he will crush your head. He's saying, effectively, you might think that you've, you've won right now. You may have won a battle. Like, so I gave humanity dominion over this earth and they may have given it away to you for a while. But let me tell you, a day is coming. There's someone that's going to come through the generations of mankind who one day will crush your head. And he'll do it in a strange way. You'll bite his heel. There'll be something weird going on there. And it might seem like you have the victory, but then he's going to crush your head. And all through the Old Testament, all up to the time of Jesus, the Jews would have been looking, waiting for this person to come. Maybe they hoped it was going to be Noah, and Noah on the ark, and Noah rescues, but then at the end of his life, Noah fails. You know, all that whole thing where he gets drunk and is naked and all that. You maybe think it's Abraham. God calls Abraham out, but then after God calls Abraham out, he goes and pretends that his wife is his sister so that, so that he won't be harmed. Abraham fails. Isaac fails. Jacob fails. It goes on and on and on. You see David, the greatest king Israel had ever known, and, and David fails with Bathsheba. You see Solomon following on from him and he fails. You see again and again this pattern of kings trying, like people thinking, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's going to win back humanity? Who's going to defeat the enemy? And none of them do. What's it telling us? That we were hopeless without a savior. Jesus did this because he loved you and because you needed him to do it. Jesus did this because you couldn't. He loves you like you can't even imagine. And by resisting the devil and this spiritual attack he's under, he claimed back what we'd lost to the enemy. And he positioned himself in that garden to be able to win back the ground that he stood on, that we'd given away, that humanity had given away. He wins it back for us. In the garden of Eden, the story was temptation and failure. In the garden of Gethsemane, the story was temptation and victory. Hebrews tells us we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we've one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus faces down the temptation to walk away, the temptation to just return to heaven, the temptation to, to just to annihilate everybody, the temptation to say, do you know what, it's not actually worth it. But he knew that it was worth it. It was worth it for you. Our sin gave the devil dominion over the earth, and Jesus his sinless life, took it back. And for those of us in Christ, here's what I want you to know, that we enter into that same victory that Jesus had. So you might look back and be like, okay, great, Jesus had victory. That's some example. But what Jesus does, he ushers in a whole new humanity where when Paul describes it, he's like, guys, you have a choice. You can remain in Adam under the curse or you can be baptized into Christ. You can be born again, raised up into, into Jesus. And when we are, we have the same victory over the enemy that Jesus had over the enemy. Because you've been placed into Christ, you can have victory. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to face difficult situations. He knows what it's like to live with anxiety and the twist in his gut. He knows what it's like to live in mental torment. He knows what it's like to sweat drops of blood and be pressed like in the olive press. But he didn't fail. And because he didn't fail, he who lives in you and is greater than is in the world will enable you to not fail. Jesus is with you. He'll comfort you. He'll strengthen you. He'll enable you to face whatever it is you're facing in your life. If you're under spiritual attack, under spiritual pressure, know that there's a victory that was won once and for all because of what Jesus went through. We can step into that victory 
we can take a hold. We're not hopeless. We're not pressed beyond what we can bear because we have Christ alive in us who's victorious over it. We know the story continues that uh, Jesus goes from Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, Judas comes along with a load of soldiers, officials, betrays him with a kiss. We have this whole interaction where Peter tries to cut the ear off one of the soldiers and Jesus heals him. And, uh, and he goes with them. He's led away to his death. And uh, we pick up the, uh, the story going from Gethsemane towards this next place called Gabbatha. And if Gethsemane was the place where Jesus suffered at the hands of the enemy, Gabbatha represents the place where Jesus suffers at the hands of mankind, at the hands of humanity. Um, and I want us to, uh, to read it out. And I'm going to read out the whole like, section of it. Um, and I was struck by this. Man, I was, I was moved by it. I was angered by it as I read it. There's one point, there's one point in it where I was like, Lord, what are, you, what are you doing? There's one point where someone asks him a question, one of the high priests, and uh, he answers it. And a soldier thinks that he's trying to be cheeky and he slaps him. And it's like when I read that, I could nearly hear the slap and like the audacity of it, right? And maybe I've watched too many superhero movies, but in my head, I was like, it was like, you know, when somebody slaps Bruce Banner and they're like, you don't want to do that, man. You don't want to make this guy angry, right? But, uh, but Jesus doesn't like turn into, like, or doesn't snap his finger and disintegrate them all. Like he takes it. And I'm like, what? Like the power of God, but under like under control, like it just it hit me in an incredible way, guys, like the God who created all, that with a word could end the earth, allows himself to be slapped in the face by this soldier, and uh, let me read it out, and, uh, and um, we see just here Jesus bearing abuse after abuse at the hands of, of us, at the hands of humanity, so Jesus has just been arrested, and uh, they're following him to the high priest's place. So John 18, 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's John who's writing the gospel. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? And all those who have heard me what I said to them, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I said what is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if I said what is right, why do you strike me? Aniston sent him down to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are also not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priests, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in that garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarter. In John 18, the story continues where Jesus is questioned by Pilate, and he answers questions about the accusations given to him. Um, and then we pick it up again in John chapter 19. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus, and he flogged him. 
And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And they arrayed him in a purple robe and came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing, out, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Excuse me. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So we have in this story, man, Jesus just suffering. Everything at the hands of humanity that you can imagine him suffering. The betrayal of Judas, the guy who he'd walked with. The abandonment of Peter, who's outside warming himself by the fire while Jesus is being accused and denies him three times before we hear the, the rooster crows. You have the humiliation of, uh, of being slapped around. The humiliation of Jesus, who was the rightful king of the Jews, being crowned with a crown of thorns and put a robe on him and bring him out to show him to everybody. And people shouting back, crucify him. The same population, the same Jews who at one stage God had said, you shouldn't have a king who rule over, who's going to rule over you. And they're like, we want a king, we want a king. Those same Jews actually reject the real king when he comes and say, we've no king except Caesar. The injustice of it that he faces, the false accusation, the mockery, the abandonment, pretty much all the bad things that were capable of inflicting on one another and some things maybe even in your life right now that you're that you've experienced humiliation your workplace maybe or your family situation abandonment betrayal don't ask us to put up our hands but they're they're real things that we all we all face maybe you've been mocked maybe you've been rejected by people maybe people have hurt you or are hurting you right now physically emotionally mentally Maybe people you trusted let you down. But do you see that, that he's been through it all? That we don't have a God who remains detached from humanity. We don't have a God like some monarch that doesn't really get real, real life. You know, like the, the Queen of England or something who sits like in a palace and is served around the place. We have, we have like a God, we have a ruler, we have a king who came down and identified with everything that we could identify with. Everything that we may be facing that Jesus went through it. 
And he, he chose to bear everything that we bear. And when you think about it, um, that's an audacious claim that, that God chose to bear everything that we bear because in some way, right, I'm not saying that we deserve the things that other people do to us, but in a, in a, in a, on a global scale, humanity deserves what humanity is doing. Do you know what I mean? Like most of the stuff that we suffer is at the hands of other humans. Most of the problems in the world are because of the greed or the corruption or the oppression of other humans. That, that it's like humanity on humanity that causes the earth to be broken in such a way. And God doesn't stay distant from that. That God cares enough to take on humanity, to become human, to come to earth um, and to identify us with that. That humanity does humanity harm but instead of just condemning us for that or giving up on us in that he becomes one of us and bears things that he's no business bearing why because he loves us like he loves you when you see the things that jesus went through there that he absolutely did not have to go through in any way shape or form absolutely did not like has no responsibility to us but it tells us in hebrews again that i mentioned before and we've spoke on this before that in hebrews 12 2 it says we should fix our eyes on jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith i love that where he says for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of god for the joy set before him do you remember when we talked about this guys are like what is the joy that was set before Jesus? What was the end game thing that enabled him to say, all right, I'm going to go through all of this because what I get on the other side is worth it. It had to have been. Sometimes we think of Jesus as he's up in heaven and he exists in one way and he comes down here and he does something else and then he gets to go back to heaven again and exist in the same way he did before. But no, something has changed. Jesus has gone bodily into heaven as a new human in a glorified human body. Something has changed forever. What did Jesus get? It wasn't just that, that new body or just dominion over, over the earth the earth already belonged to him not what jesus wanted that he didn't have that was willing to make him come suffer the humiliation the abuse the betrayal the 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 abandonment that he suffered the pain that he suffered the agony that he suffered was the thought of spending eternity with you you're what he didn't have before he left heaven outside of him we were hopeless we were destined to an eternity without him the joy that stood before Jesus that enabled him to bear the cross, that enabled him to just not snap his fingers and end it all, that enabled him to not just give up on the world, was that he loved you, that he taught you up before the beginning of the world, and his intention was that he would spend eternity with you on this earth, that he would spend eternity with you, and that's the thing that he was willing to come to earth for, was to spend it with you. He loves you. You are the joy that was set before him. He makes himself the object of our sin at its worst so that we can be with him. And in a place called Gabbatha, he allows humanity to pass judgment on him. Same Jesus who we know is going to sit on the judgment seat and judge the world. It says that he stood before Pilate who sat on a judgment seat and allowed himself to be judged. That's incredible. Why? For the joy set before him because he loves you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus went through the worst that humanity had to offer to usher in a, a new humanity, to kick off his plans for this new humanity, to connect you to a father that's never going to betray you, that's never going to reject you, that's never going to abandon you, that's never going to humiliate you, that's never going to let you down. He goes through all of that stuff so that we can have the hope of a life where none of that stuff exists. 
anymore. That's what Jesus did. Thank you, Lord. The third place he went to, Golgotha. We pick up the story again in, uh, in the Gospel of John on the next slide, Malachi. Um, John 19, it says that they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called uh, the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Jesus is nailed to a cross. This death is a death that's reserved for the most serious of offenders. It's like the Romans came up with it as a way not just to punish someone, but to further humiliate them, to cause them suffering, to cause them pain, to torture them in their death. Seven-inch nails drilled through through his hands to hold him up. Seven-inch nails through his feet with his legs kind of bent like this. The idea is that the longer you you stay on the cross, the more your weight carries you down and your shoulders dislocate. And eventually the weight on your chest is too much and you're crushed under the weight of it and you can't breathe anymore and you suffocate and you die. It wasn't a quick death. It was a painful, slow death. And it might seem that uh, this is a continuation of man's infliction of suffering on Jesus, but the Bible tells us something different. It tells us something interesting because... The prophet Isaiah had prophesied about this moment and he gives us some insight to what's actually happening here, that this isn't just man further doing damage to Jesus. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53. Um, It says, He was pierced for our transgressions, those seven-inch nails for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The weight of his chest crushing him as he, he couldn't breathe was for our iniquities, our sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before his shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen to this last line. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. If Gethsemane is where... Jesus suffers at the hand of the enemy. If Gabbath is where Jesus suffers at the hand of humanity, then Golgotha is where Jesus suffers at the hand of his Father. He suffers at the hand of Almighty God. It was the will of God to to crush him. It was the will of the Father to put him to grief. This is a place that he went to alone and a place that he went to in our place because... Our sins needed to be dealt with. We know it. Our sins needed to be to be punished. And instead of punishing us, Jesus comes and he takes the punishment on himself. He willingly subjects himself to the punishment and the crushing of his father. Yes, humanity nailed him to the cross, but it was the father's will that Jesus would be crushed. It's the father who places the sin of the world onto the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and slaughters him. He suffers at the hand of God. See, something incredible happens because 
for a time we may still suffer at the hands of the enemy till Jesus returns. And we may suffer even at the hands of people because of what happened at Golgotha. We never have to suffer at the hands of the ultimate judge of all things, the Lord God Almighty. We may suffer at the hands of the enemy for a while, may suffer at the hands of people, but we know that for eternity we get to go to be in glory. Before Jesus, it may look like you could get by in the world, but your eternity was damned. After Jesus, yes, we may go through some suffering for a while because the earth is still being fixed. The earth is still broken, still in the process till he returns. But we know that we now have an eternity where we never have to suffer the wrath of God. Why? Because on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was lain, and here in the death of God I live. That's the songwriters say. Thank you, Jesus. He took all the suffering for our sins. He loved you so much that he bore your cross. He took your beating. He died your death. And he paid it all. I started by saying that because of where he's been, we get to be where he is. Where had he been? Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Galgotha. Where is he now? Now he's in glory. Which starts with a G as well, praise the Lord. We get to be where he is. And not just in the future tense, as in when we die, we get to go to be in glory. You know, one of the verses that we've been working through as a church, or I really be compelled by, is this, John 17. You know, the call to love one another as he's loved us, to be one as he is one. But John says in that, John 17, 22, the glory you have given me, I have given to them. He's talking to the Father. The glory you have given me, I have given to them. It's not like the glory you will give me in the future, I will give to them in the future. It's in the past tense. The glory you've given to me, I've given to them. Somehow, we've already become partakers in God's glory. When Roman, when Paul talks about it in Romans, the great verse, Romans 8.30, those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. Right? We know that's happened in the past tense. That's what he's done. He's predestined us. He's called us. He's justified us. And then it continues. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the past tense as well. Not those who he justifies one day, he's going to glorify. Those who he's justified, he's glorified. Already, some of the glory that was meant for mankind to live in has been restored to us yes there's a fulfillment of it when jesus returns when we go to be with him or he comes to be with us but uh but there's a a, a, a a way that we step into it today there's a glory that we get to be where he is today that we've been glorified we've been made to share in jesus glory what does that mean i don't have time to tell you it's another sermon next time we'll speak about some of the incredible um truths that exist in the fact that we've been glorified that we've been given an inheritance in christ that we've been made part of that new humanity that jesus started i want to challenge us and i want us to 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 understand that stuff that our glorification was his end game that the payoff for all the suffering he went through was that you and i get to share in the glory of jesus now and forever i also started off by saying that i really felt that god would want you to know his heart towards you and if you're in any of those places today if you can identify i want us to end with a song maybe that i need you more song but the lord was on that this morning um and uh maybe you're in the place of uh of like gethsemane maybe you've been under spiritual attack been under pressure maybe you felt like packing it all in like like jesus who didn't pack it all in but he's like look if there's another way lord let it happen maybe they've been your questions before god what's what's going on Maybe you're being pressed 
like the olives are pressed in that place. Maybe you're, you're anxious. Maybe you're facing into a tough tomorrow after a tough today and a tough yesterday and you don't know if you're able to get through it. Maybe you feel like throwing in the towel. What God would want you to know is that he's been there and he beat it and he's in you and you can beat it in Jesus' name. Maybe you've suffered at the hands of others today. You've been betrayed or hurt or humiliated, abandoned or accused. He's been there. He's been there to the ultimate extent and he's experienced what you're going through. He knows how it feels and he went through it to bring an end to that stuff. He'll never betray you, never hurt you, never abandon you, never humiliate you. He'll remain steadfast and faithful and full of love and mercy and he can heal you today from the inside out. As Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. There's healing today from what humanity has thrown at you. And finally, Jesus went to Golgotha alone. But maybe you feel like you've messed up and you need to apply what Jesus did in Golgotha for you. Maybe to call a spade a spade, you've been in sin, right? You know you've just been struggling with this thing. And what have you been doing? You're condemning yourself. You're... you're, uh, you're beating yourself up. You feel like you're being knocked out of the race. You feel like I've no credibility in this anymore. What I feel the Lord would want to remind you of this morning is that he went there alone because he was the only one who could pay the price and the price has been paid. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's conviction of our sin, yeah, but what does conviction do? It leads us to repentance, to fall at the feet of the cross again, to go to a Father who we know is faithful and just to forgive our sins when we confess them, that you're not knocked out of the race, that there's still a plan A for your life, that there's still hope for you, even if you've been caught in a cyclical thing, that it can be broken off in the name of Jesus, that we need to believe the truth over believing the lie. The only power the enemy has is to convince you of something that isn't true and cause you to agree with it and believe with it and live life as if it's true. The truth is that whom the Son set free is free indeed. And if that's you this morning and you've been condemning yourself, that... Uh, God's pastoral shepherd's heart to you this morning would be to reach out and say, my son or my daughter, I love you. I'm waiting to return. return. I'm waiting to restore you. I'm waiting to build you up. Like the prodigal son, I'm waiting to put that ring back on your finger, the robe on your back and throw a party because that which was lost was found and has been returned. Father sent his son to be condemned in your place, which means you don't need to bear the condemnation and there was a son who went um, because he loved you 